Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome. Uh, my name is Karen Eifler, and together with Father Charlie Gordon, we uh, run the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the University. And I think there are a lot of friends of Stephen Shoemaker here tonight, and this might be your first visit to the University of Portland, so we're really happy that you're here. Um, I think if anyone wants to break down and sit in the front row, we still have some seats available. All right, there is no audience participation uh, planned for tonight. I'm really nervous about getting asked a tough question or something like that. We are uh, we have some special guests with us tonight. In addition to our speaker, we are delighted to welcome our provost, Dr. Tom Green, over there, and. Um, Barbara and John Adams, uh, who are celebrating their 47th wedding anniversary. What better way to celebrate <laughs> If you live in the area and getting to the University of Portland is something that you could do, and you love what you see here tonight, and I'm pretty sure that you will, uh, I want to make sure that you know on your way out, we have a very full calendar uh, lined up for the spring. We've got the Simpsons and Theology. We've got Why Aren't Comics Funny Anymore. We've got panels for every play that's going on. We have Hiding in Plain Sight, the art of turbans and hoodies and head covers uh, from the Renaissance to the present. Uh, that's going to be pretty amazing. And, and a whole lot of other things. I, I always think whatever the event that we're just about to launch is coming up is the best one that we have. So tonight is the very best thing that we have coming up um, in the next 24 hours. So make sure that you grab a calendar if you'd like to be part of our mailing list that keeps you on top of the fast-breaking Garaventa Center uh, events. We, we send out a newsletter once a month and also connects you to our weekly podcast series uh, in which Father Charlie uh, provides a terrific four and a half minute reflection on the Sunday readings. And we also turn most of our uh, presentations into podcasts. So if you wanted to re-listen to this um, on the treadmill or something like that, that's also part of being part of our electronic mailing list. If you're a student here as part of a class, you'll uh, get a chance to sign that sheet on your way out. And if you are a K-12 teacher in any school system, we have a partnership with our school of ed that allows us to offer you at no cost to you um, professional development units. And all you need to do is sign up for that on your way out. And they, they will be in your inbox by the end of the day tomorrow, okay? Is that all for announcements? Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you again for being here tonight, and I know that you're in for a treat. Dr. Stephen Shoemaker traveled all the way from Eugene to be with us uh, tonight. In the teaching part of his life, he's a professor of religious studies at the University of Oregon, where he makes the earliest days of Christianity and Islam come alive for his students. And he can do that because those faraway days are part of the many languages that he reads and writes and speaks. Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Arabic, just to name a few. In the research part of his life, grants and fellowships from Harvard, from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and the Guggenheim Foundation, among many, have taken Dr. Shoemaker all over the world to pore over ancient manuscripts, and often it's his translations that make the future work of other biblical scholars possible. He is in uh, great demand as an invited speaker at places like Tübingen, Germany, Cambridge, England, Vienna, Austria, and we are delighted to add the Garaventa Center at the Uni University of Portland to that august list of places that Dr. Shoemaker has shared the fruits of his capacious mind and relentlessly curious spirit. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Shoemaker for a presentation on Mary in early Christian faith and devotion. Thank you very much for that more than generous introduction. I, wow, I hope you haven't hyped me too much. Um, it is a great crowd. I'm really excited about this turnout. Although, I, I don't think I know most of you. Um, I 
think it's just the, the Theotokos and Blessed Virgin Mary sells herself. I mean, who doesn't want to learn more about the Virgin Mary? I, I'm so glad you chose this icon. Uh, this is an icon I, that I saw in Tbilisi. Uh, Melissa, my partner, and I were traveling, and we were just we were struck by it. It was too expensive for us, of course. Uh, I've never seen this, the virgin with the grapes like this, ever, and I don't know what to make of it. And then the child with the, with the grape leaf, I've never seen anything like this, and I just, I just love it, actually. I think it's so neat. Uh, anyway, what, what, what an extra treat that I didn't know you guys would, would, would get from, from this slide. Thanks for that. And thanks for arranging this, uh, Karen, Father Charlie. It's really my pleasure to be here. Uh, it's, it's always nice to be in Portland, but remember, it's more important to be nice. <laughs> Pilot said that once on a flight to Portland. Can't claim originality. Um, okay. I'm going to talk to you tonight about uh, the history of early Marian piety. This was something uh, that it surprised me to learn that it hadn't really been done yet. Uh, there have been a lot of studies of Mary, especially a lot of work on Mary and Christian thought. I think as you'll see as I, as I get into this pretty quickly, uh, we really haven't investigated, although now, now hopefully we have. I've written a book about this, so I hope it's just the first of many books that people will be writing about devotion to Mary in the early Christian centuries. Uh, there is a strangely overlooked topic, and some of what I want to talk about is why I think that has been the case, uh, and what are some of the problems studying the early history of the, the cult or veneration of the Virgin Mary, uh, and just what is some of the evidence that we have for the earliest Christian devotion uh, and to Mary and veneration of Mary. So let's go. It is rather remarkable, I think, that even at this late date, there is still very little satisfactory study of the development of Marian piety in ancient Christianity. In view of the considerable importance that devotion to the Virgin Mary has held over the course of Christian history, one might expect that by now there would be any number of monographs on this topic. But as others have noted before me, such a comprehensive study remains, or remained, uh, lacking. This absence became quite clear to me some 20 years ago as I began research for my first book on the ancient traditions of Mary's Dormition and Assumption, that is, the traditions about the end of her life. In setting out, I simply assumed that the origins of Marian piety would already be well mapped onto the history of early Christianity. And I still recall my astonishment when one specialist in early Byzantine piety suggested that I might find in these early Dormition and Assumption traditions the origins of Marian intercession. Such a matter had surely been long settled, I naively thought. Yet despite the existence of a number of fine articles and even several monographs on specific aspects of devotion to Mary in late antiquity, uh, there was then, and hopefully not any longer now that I published this book, an adequate treatment of Marian piety's emergence within the history of early Christianity. Of course, there has been much previous investigation of Marian doctrine during the early Christian period. But such studies generally pay scant attention to the emergence of Marian devotion and cult, preferring instead to focus on Mary's position in the development of Christian dogma. And likewise, there has been a significant amount of Roman Catholic scholarship on Mary and early Christianity, much of it coming toward the end of the so-called Marian century of 1850 to 1950. Nevertheless, these works often show a strong tendency towards dogmatic readings of the evidence that seek to align early Christian history with modern Roman Catholic doctrine. And occasionally they are overly optimistic about how quickly veneration of the Virgin took hold within ancient Christianity. While such perspectives have obvious value in a Roman Catholic context, they hold limited use for understanding the historical development of early Christianity and Mary's place therein. Accordingly, it would appear that the history of early Marian piety is largely unwritten. I wish that I could promise that I have now been able to dispel the fog that has been surrounding the origins of devotion to the Virgin, but unfortunately the limitations of our evidence in fact preclude such an outcome. No doubt this 
problem of the evidence is largely to blame for the relative neglect of this subject. Instead, what I hope to offer in my new study is an approach to this topic that contributes to a better understanding, basic understanding, of how Mary emerged as a focus of Christian devotion. There is certainly much more to be said about Mary's role in early Christianity than I can cover in my talk today or even in my recent book. And no doubt additional sources relevant to early Marian piety will continue to emerge. But one of the main goals of this project has been to assemble the scattered and often overlooked evidence for early Marian piety from the very beginnings of Christianity up through and including the events of the Council of Ephesus, the Third Ecumenical Council, where in 431, Mary was famously proclaimed as the Theotokos, that is, the one who gave birth to God. Nevertheless, since there's virtually no evidence of any devotion to Mary prior to 150, or for that matter, to any other figure besides Jesus, a practical matter, what I'm really looking at here is the period from the latter half of the second century to the first half of the fifth. The reasons for, collect, for, for selecting such a chronological win, window are fairly obvious. The Council of Ephesus is widely recognized as a watershed event in the history of Marian piety. In fact, the explosion of devotion to the Virgin that took place in the aftermath of this council was so significant that much previous scholarship has credited the council itself and its decisions with giving rise to the cult of the Virgin almost single-handedly. It is now increasingly clear, however, that devotion to the Virgin and even her cultic veneration had begun well before the Council of Ephesus had even convened. And there is significant evidence that the controversies of this third council were themselves fueled at least partly by an already vibrant devotion to the Virgin Mary that had established itself in Constantinople and elsewhere in the Roman Empire. So while the Christological views of a certain Nestorius, which were the main focus of this ecumenical council, were certainly upsetting to his more learned theological opponents, it was Nestorius's refusal to call Mary Theotokos, the God-bearer, that seems to have turned the tide of popular opinion against him. Now, although questions will remain as to just how much Marian piety may have determined the debates of this council and their outcome, there can be little question that widespread devotion to the Virgin played an important role in the broader conversation. However one may estimate the relation between Marian piety and the events of the Council of Ephesus, there can be no mistaking that in the Council's aftermath, devotion to the Virgin intensified considerably and spread widely. As one scholar aptly observes, during the middle of the 5th century, I quote here, the figure of Mary emerged like a comet in Christian devotion and liturgical celebration throughout the world. <coughs> Scholars of early Christianity have long struggled to comprehend this dramatic explosion of Marian piety after Ephesus, particularly in light of the apparent paucity of evidence for devotion to the Virgin from previous centuries. It is in fact true that most Christian sources from the first four centuries have surprisingly little to say about Mary. Early Orthodox writers enlist her motherhood of Jesus as a guarantee of his humanity. Her virginal conception is a sign of his exalted status. Her obedience at the Annunciation rectifies the disobedience of Eve, making Mary a new Eve for the new Adam. And her persistence in virginity is a model for other virgins. There is, however, beyond this little interest in Mary in her own right, and almost no evidence of Marian cult before the middle of the fourth century. Such relative silence is indeed difficult to reconcile with the thriving Marian piety that we suddenly find in the fifth century, particularly in the Eastern Mediterranean world. Nevertheless, despite the limitations of the evidence and the convictions of much earlier scholarship, the notion that the abstruse theological debates over Nestorius's Christology at the Third Council, the Council of Ephesus, could somehow have generated the cult of the Virgin with such apparent velocity seems, frankly, rather preposterous. Now, just to put a bow on this, what I'm saying here, scholars have time and again said no one prayed to Mary until there was this big ecumenical council in 431, and then all of a sudden they were like, oh, Mary, she's really cool, we should pray to her, right? And what I'm saying to you is, no, 
that's not the case, that's ridiculous, how could we ever have thought that? While the council's outcome and its proclamation of Mary as Theotokos obviously catalyzed the growth and spread of Marian cult, there can be little question that the veneration of Mary had already begun to establish itself before the events of Ephesus. The difficulty, however, lies in finding clear evidence of devotion to Mary during the first four centuries that can offer meaningful precedent capable of explaining the eruption of Marian piety that took place in the middle of the fifth century. And although such evidence is surprisingly scarce, given Mary's prominence in the later Christian tradition, it is nonetheless sufficient to sketch a history of early Christian devotion to Mary. There are, in fact, many traces of an incipient Marian piety from the pre-Ephesian period before 431, a number of which are by now well known, but these are scattered and often faint, making it difficult to judge their overall significance as a witness to emergent devotion to the Virgin. One of the most famous of these is a text called the Protevangelium of James, right? literally the, the Proto-Gospel of James. A uh, very poorly named text, actually, because what this is, in fact, is a late second century biography of Mary that tells the story of her youth. It's not about Jesus. It's about Mary. It tells the story of her youth from her own conception through the nativity of Christ. The Protevangelium reveals a surprisingly developed interest in Mary as a significant figure in her own right, as well as early devotion to her unique holiness. Although, to be clear, there is admittedly no evidence of any cultic veneration, no prayer to Mary. Nevertheless, the remarkably advanced Marian piety of the Protevangelium stands at a considerable distance from the widespread devotion that would follow in the fifth century. And it is not, it is still not, I would say, entirely clear what happened in between. As other scholars have noted, the Protevangelium's great reverence for the Virgin seems so isolated within its immediate historical context that it needs to be better connected to the emergence of Mary's cult in late antiquity. And this, in essence, is what I have aimed to achieve in the recent book, bridging the piety of the Protevangelium with the veneration of the fifth and later centuries through the Marian traditions of the second, third, and fourth centuries. In order to accomplish this, it's necessary to examine a wide range of sources including a number of long-overlooked and recently discovered texts, as well as more familiar witnesses to early Marian piety, such as this Protevangelium. In particular, the apocryphal literature of early Christianity, that is, its extra-canonical gospels and other related extra-biblical texts, offers a significant, if largely neglected, witness to early Christian interests in Mary. These extra-biblical writings, and especially the early Dormition and Assumption Apocrypha, that is, these texts telling the end of Mary's life, present much clearer evidence of devotion to the Virgin than one finds, for instance, in the writings of the so-called Church Fathers. Indeed, it would appear that a focus largely on patristic sources, on the Church Fathers, is at least partly responsible for leading earlier scholars to the conclusion that Marian veneration was largely unknown in the early church. For whatever reason, Marian piety seems to register more clearly in apocryphal and also liturgical texts than it does in theological or moral treatises. Why it is more visible in these contexts than in the writings of the early Christian intellectuals and bishops that we name the fathers, admittedly, is not entirely clear. Yet this evidence of early devotion from the apocryphal writings in particular could seem to suggest that Marian piety first developed in milieu outside the purview of the quote-unquote orthodox church authorities, in heterodox, and in other theologically marginal communities. The sharply heterodox, unorthodox context of some of these texts could seem to affirm such a hypothesis, and I'm just saying this is one hypothesis. And occasionally these sources reveal understandings of Mary decidedly different from those related by the Church Fathers. Some early Christians, for instance, 
remembered the Virgin Mary as a learned teacher of the divine mysteries. In any case, as we will see, these texts afford clear evidence that Marian veneration had indeed come into existence already by the 4th century at the latest, even if the church fathers in the main seem to have kept their silence from, kept their distance from this practice, sorry, uh, prior to the 5th century. Scholarly response to the sparse state of our evidence for devotion to Mary during the early centuries has varied a great deal. Although generally, it has fallen in one of two directions, usually according to confessional orientation. Such sectarian divide certainly comes as no great surprise, particularly given Mary's often volatile status in the history of Protestant and Catholic debate, where her veneration has long posed one of the major theological boundaries dividing these Christian communities. And despite the convergence of much Catholic, Protestant, and secular scholarship on Christian origins over the past several decades, as Beverly Roberts Gaventa observes, and I quote her, the differences between Catholic and Protestant perspectives on Mary remain significant in this scholarship. Although one hesitates to generalize about something as diverse as modern Roman Catholicism, there has been a tendency in much Catholic scholarship, as I've noted already, to maximize the somewhat limited evidence for early Marian piety. One of the most common solutions to this problem is to find ways of reading modern Mariological dogmas back into the writings of the New Testament and the early church fathers. Such an approach finds passages from early Christian literature that seem reminiscent of modern Catholic doctrines. And despite the clear absence of such beliefs from early Christian literature when read on its own terms, and the obvious contextual difficulties of such readings, on this basis, it has often been alleged that the Marian dogmas of modern Catholicism also belonged to the ancient church. While such an interpretive move is entirely appropriate, I would suggest, within the context of Catholic dogmatics, where confidence in the eternal truth of the church's teaching effectively requires such readings of the early evidence. These ultimately apologetic exercises fail to shed any actual historical light on the emergence of Marian piety in early Christianity. On the Protestant side, other than general neglect, the tendency has been to emphasize the dearth of evidence and on this basis to refuse the existence of any significant devotion to the Virgin prior to the middle of the 5th century. The Council of Ephesus, as I've said, is in this case often adduced as the sole and sufficient cause for what amounts to an essentially medieval cult of Mary. In this way, the early church could be made into a largely Mary-free zone, well-suited to Protestantism's rejection of the elaborate and intense devotion to Mary that characterizes its parent faith. Recent decades, it is true, have seen some renewed Protestant interest in Mary, no doubt much of it inspired by broader academic and theological concerns with women's history and gender. Nevertheless, by and large, such studies have tended to focus primarily on the exegesis of Mary's appearances in the New Testament, as one might expect. Uh, rather than on Marian doctrine or veneration. It is also worth noting that this narrative of Mary's relatively late arrival on the scene also appears in a kind of what I would call post-Protestant guise in certain more secular accounts that take a similar approach. And unfortunately, in these contexts, as well as in much earlier Protestant scholarship, a sort of anti-Catholicism can sometimes stand fairly close to the surface of these accounts about Mary. Not surprisingly, these confessional dynamics have done little to foster any critical study of early Marian piety. Happily, however, it would appear that this, as if this gap is beginning to narrow, as many mainline Protestant theologians have begun to grapple with the fact that their acceptance of the first four ecumenical councils includes Ephesus and makes Marian devotion somewhat difficult to ignore completely, while Catholic scholarship has shown an increasing willingness, willingness to embrace historical critical scholarship, particularly since the Second Vatican Council. Yet the fact remains that outside of Catholic circles, little consideration has been given so far to the possibility that Christians may have begun significant veneration of the Virgin prior to the Council of Ephesus. And likewise, much, but certainly not all, 
of the earlier work by Catholic scholars has been essentially apologetic or dogmatic in nature and has a limited historical value. <clears throat> and so it would, it would seem that in many respects, the investigation of early, the early development of Marian piety has only just begun. And above all, it will now be essential to look back beyond the events of the Council of Ephesus in order to discover its roots. No less problematic in the study of early Marian piety has been a persistent urge to discover an explanation for early Marian veneration that locates its genesis primarily in some larger cultural influence extraneous to the Christian tradition. In this respect, much current scholarship on the origins of Marian devotion suffers, in my opinion, from a crisis of both over-explanation and insufficient understanding. Numerous studies have been published that would purport to explain Christian devotion to Mary as the result of some foreign impulse that intruded the Christian faith, or else as something fully comprehensible only in light of some modern intellectual discourse that reveals the peculiar logic underlying this reverence for Mary. Indeed, works taking such an approach are often among those most cited by non-specialists, particularly because they appear to operate outside of the confessional interests that govern other more theologically oriented works. Nevertheless, it's hard not to see such approaches as a kind of extension of the more avowedly Protestant view of Marian cult as something grafted onto the Christian tradition, only rather late in the game. As a result, Marian piety is effectively made out to be something so exotic, so discordant with the fabric of, Christian, of the Christian faith, that external influences must be identified in order to comprehend its very existence. Whether it be ancient goddess traditions, psychoanalysis, the eternal feminine, or the anthropology of sacrifice in one case, something else must explain why and how the early Christians turned to Mary in prayer and devotion. To be sure, there is nothing inherently wrong with such perspectives in their own right, and all are immensely valuable for understanding the many facets of Marian devotion and its origins. Feminist critiques of Mary's overwhelmingly patriarchal representation are particularly needful and welcome. But the problem here is, as a, a good friend of mine, Nina Mari Peltema, observes, this abundance of explanation has in fact prevented us from recognizing that we actually lack a historical reconstruction of the rise of the cult of the Virgin. So much emphasis on discovering the skeleton key that unlocks the mystery of Christian devotion to Mary has left us without an account of early Marian piety that describes how the basic principles underlying these influential beliefs and practices actually arose from a logic native to the Christian tradition itself. Instead, devotion to the Virgin is presented as something largely anomalous to the Christian tradition, a historical oddity that requires some sort of dramatic explanation for its genesis. By comparison, for instance, it is hard to imagine a similar urgency being given to discovering why so many early Christians were devoted to St. Thecla or St. Mary of Magdala. Something peculiar seems to be at work in many of these approaches to the development of Marian piety. Of all of these different options, the goddess explanation has certainly proven to be the most popular, and so perhaps it warrants some direct attention. On the one hand, there is no denying that Mary's representation and veneration have been deeply colored by the influence of earlier traditions derived from the worship of various goddesses in the ancient Mediterranean world. Yet, on the other hand, these similarities are often superficial in nature, and they frequently can distract from more fundamental differences at both the conceptual and practical levels, as is also true more broadly in the early Christian cult of the saints. It is a profound mistake to imagine that such parallels should somehow explain the origins of the cult of Mary, and likewise reveal it as something exogenous to the Christian tradition. The simple truth of the matter is that a great deal of traditional Christian faith and practice reflects earlier precedents from the Greco-Roman world, not only in the case of the veneration of saints more generally, but in other areas as well, such as the Eucharist or the celebration of Christmas, right? So much of early Christian culture was deeply imprinted 
by Hellenistic precedents that one must wonder why the influence of goddess traditions on Marian piety should somehow be singled out as it often has been. And as scholars have increasingly come to recognize, this Christian-pagan dichotomy that underlies these kinds of explanations is largely a false one in late antiquity. Furthermore, scholars of late antiquity have recently drawn attention to the fact that such appeals to the pagan origin of certain Christian beliefs and practices, and particularly the veneration of saints, derive largely in actuality from Protestant invectives against Roman Catholicism or from Enlightenment critiques of, of vulgar, right, common, popular religious practices. Of course, such misuse does not mean that the comparative history of religions should be abandoned or fronted, but rather, we must instead be aware that this approach is not always ideologically neutral and may reflect different sorts of inherent bias. And in the case of early Marian piety, it is often hard to miss such undertones. Protestant writers have often emphasized the influence of ancient goddess traditions in order to make Marian devotion appear as something alien to the Christian tradition, framing the rise of Marian cult in terms of her gradual deification, rather than, instead, as a fairly ordinary development of late ancient Christian piety. So while parallels between ancient goddess traditions and early Marian piety, of course, remain significant for the historian of religion, they do not explain the emergence of Christian devotion to Mary, and likewise should not be allowed to control its interpretation in the way that one finds in much previous scholarship. Instead, one is inclined to agree with Avril Cameron, who I think is the one, we mentioned her a little bit later, so I think this is the greatest scholar of late antiquity and is one of my heroes. Uh, she rightly concludes of Marian veneration, and I quote her, no religious development of such importance can be explained in simple or monocausal terms. Pagan syncretism may have played a part, but in my view, it was a minor one. Competition would be a better, mo a better model." Quote. So, rather than looking for some external cause or explanation, I propose that what we need to do is seek to understand the origins of Marian piety, primarily on terms taken from within the Christian tradition itself. Devotion to Mary is, in fact, a product of early Christian culture that grew naturally out of its concerns with Christology and virginity, and most especially, the practice of venerating the saints. There is simply no need to find some sort of outside influence that is responsible for Christian veneration of the Virgin Mary. It was implicit in the patterns of early Christian discourse. Of course, there is again no question that precedents from ancient Mediterranean goddess traditions and insights from modern social sciences can offer us important perspectives for studying the history of Marian devotion. Yet at the same time, it seems absolutely essential to understand Christian veneration of Mary as something arising from within the Christian tradition itself. The cult of the Virgin must have had a powerful resonance with other central elements of early Christian discourse and practice for it to have achieved the remarkable success that it did. And this becomes most evident as we begin to situate the emergence of devotion to Mary within the broader context of the emergent Christian devotion to the saints. For that is how the cult of the Virgin should primarily be understood in early Christianity, as simply one variation, albeit a remarkable one, of the nascent cult of the saints. Of course, Mary quickly emerged, even in this early period, as a saint whose petitions and influence with her son surpassed that of other potential advocates. Likewise, we can see that already in late antiquity, the Virgin had begun to acquire some of the accolades and attributes that would ultimately lead to her elevation above the rest of the company of the saints as a sort of super saint, especially in the late medieval and modern West. Indeed, in these later periods, Mary sometimes came to be regarded as almost superhuman, and was elevated dangerously close to an equal footing with her son. Nevertheless, I will not attempt to account for these more recent developments in the medieval and modern Western traditions, since these elements are largely foreign to Mary's veneration in late antiquity. And this is an area where one can consult any number of fine studies on medieval and early modern piety. Yet at the same time, it would appear that this exaltation of Mary in later centuries in the Christian West is at least partly responsible for some of the over-determined explanations of Marian piety that I previously mentioned. 
focus on these later developments has occasionally distorted scholarly perceptions of early Marian piety, and thereby inspired the search for a more dramatic cause for her cult. And while the near apotheosis of Mary in some quarters of the Roman Catholic tradition may warrant the identification of some extraordinary catalyst, although I remain skeptical of this as well, such later developments need not concern us as we try to understand the beginnings of early Christian devotion to Mary. Instead, we need to dial things back a bit from the medieval Mary in order to better understand her role in ancient Christian faith and practice. And at this early stage, she was effectively a saint among other saints, who was revered for her exceptional purity and holiness, as well as her intimacy with her son. A more, a more modest status that she retains, more or less, in much of the Christian East up until the present day. So, my hero, the English scholar of late antiquity, Avril Cameron, was seemingly the first to propose that the origins of Marian veneration are best understood when placed within this broader context of the emerging cult of the saints. Right? And, and so much of the work I've done is inspired by earlier work she did. Yet at the same time, she, take, to take one example, has rather recently maintained, I quote, only after the Council of Ephesus and the recognition of her title as Theotokos, the god there, in A.D. 431, do we find the real development of the cult of, virgin, of the Virgin, which was to find expression in the 6th century now, even later, in the 6th century, uh, in popular, uh, sorry, in particular in the establishment of a Marian feasts and stories of her appearances, and of miracles performed by her. Only in the 6th century, right? This is really pushing things in the Middle Ages. Cameron also frequently remarks in her many publications on early devotion to Mary that the cult of the Virgin developed much more slowly than did the cult of many other early saints. And here she usually cites the cult of St. Thecla, a missionary apostle of St. Paul. If you've never read the Acts of Paul and Thecla, go home and do it tonight. It's a really amazing story. Acts of Paul and Thecla. You can find it on, you can find it on the Google. Uh, usually citing the cult of St. Thecla as a main point of reference. Uh, her argument is that Mary's cult develops much, much, much more slowly than Thecla's. And in many respects, Thecla presents an ideal figure for such a comparison. Although Cameron goes a bit far, I think, in suggesting that Thecla was in fact more popular and influential in early Christianity than the Virgin Mary, it seems safe to say that this missionary companion of Paul was the only female figure in early Christianity whose popularity could possibly rival that of Jesus' mother. Nevertheless, as we will see, the evidence for early devotion to Mary actually compares quite favorably for that of Thecla, and in many cases, it is indeed much better. So in making a case for the priority of Thecla's cult, Professor Cameron points especially to the famous itinerary of an early Christian pilgrim to the Holy Land. It's from the earliest pilgrimage accounts we have. A pilgrim named Ageria, who visited the Holy Land in 384. And on her way, she visits a shrine of St. Thecla on the southern coast of Turkey. There it was, according to this late 2nd century Acts of Paul and Thecla, that she completed her life. So we have a shrine for Thecla. Furthermore, Cameron notes that Thecla's depiction in visual art and pilgrimage souvenirs, as well as the existence in the 5th century of a Life and Miracles collection of Thecla, offer clear indication for an early active cult. Uh, by contrast, Cameron posits that, and I quote her again, in the case of the Virgin, the kind of evidence that is plentiful for the cult of Thecla from the 4th and 5th centuries tends not to be found until the late 6th, now we're into the late 6th and 7th centuries, roughly 200 years later. Now, despite this frequent assertion of Marian veneration's tardy arrival, and part of why I cite Cameron in this case is because this is something that's been cited over and over again. Thecla is much earlier than Mary, and it's just not true. It's just not true. The truth of the matter is that on the whole, the earliest evidence for the cult of the Virgin is not significantly later, particularly if one looks beyond the environs of the imperial capital, the city Constantinople. And this is one of the things that steers, I think, Cameron down a blind alley here. As has long been well known, the earliest shrines to the Virgin were established not in Constantinople, but in the Jerusalem area, 
already by the first decades of the 5th century, and perhaps be probably even earlier than the beginning of the 5th century. Admittedly, this is some 40 years after we first learn of Thecla's shrine in Seleucia. But one certainly has to wonder, are several decades really evidence that Mary's cult was laid on the scene, or is this difference merely a matter of serendipity? Specialists on the Jerusalem liturgies would tend to suggest indeed the latter, and that the shrines in Jerusalem are older. Uh, and several scholars have proposed that in all probability, both the shrines and the annual feast of Mary commemorated in them go back at least into the later 4th century. And not only that, but around the same time that we find the first clear evidence for these Jerusalem shrines, the early 5th century, the church of Santa Maria Maggiore is, was just being finished in Rome even as this third ecumenical council I've mentioned, meeting at 431 in Ephesus, convened in a church dedicated to the Virgin Mary. In terms of literary production, the Purity Evangelium of James certainly offers a worthy rival to Thecla's Acts of Paul and Thecla, and judging from this basis, the Christians of the later second century seem to have held at least as much interest in the mother of Jesus as in this companion of Paul. And Mary certainly can best Thecla in this arena as we move into later centuries. An account of Mary's life and miracles can easily be dated to the 4th century, at least a century before we find the life and miracles of Thecla. And in all probability, other similar Mary, sorry, in all probability, another similar Marian narrative dates to the 3rd century, if not even earlier. Moreover, both of these early Marian texts bear witness now to the practice of intercessory prayer to the Virgin. Not just esteem for her purity, intercessory prayer to the Virgin. And the 4th century narrative, in particular, reveals a highly developed cult of the Virgin with three annual feasts celebrated in her honor. These two writings, the writings in question, are the earliest surviving accounts of the end of Mary's life, her Dormition and Assumption. Although these texts have been largely ignored by scholars of early Christianity until the present, it is no exaggeration to say that they are equal in importance to the Protoevangelium of James for understanding Mary's significance in the early Christian tradition and the rise of her cult. The first of these two early Marian narratives is a work often known in the scholarly literature by its Latin title, the Liber Requiem Mariae, the Book of Mary's Repose is how it translates, uh, which is the title that I'll use. This entire work survives only in a translation into classical Ethiopic Genes. And it's a translation that seems to have made, been made sometime during late antiquity, probably not long after the conversion of Ethiopia. Did you know that? The church in Ethiopia is quite ancient. Uh, but there's also some significant fragments of this text that survive in other languages as well, notably Syriac and Old Georgian. No doubt, this apocryphon, this text, preservation in these lesser-known languages, is at least partly responsible for the fact that it has been so long overlooked. The Greek original that underlies these translations, the Greek original of the Book of Mary's Repose, dates most likely to the third century, although it's possible that it is even earlier. In comparison with the Protoevangelium, this apocryphon, the Book of Mary's Repose, is less obsessed with Mary's purity and holiness. Those are the themes of the Protoevangelium. Here, instead, we find Mary as a much more active figure who possesses superior understanding of the Christian faith and is revered for it by the apostles and other members of the Christian community. The story itself, which relates Mary's glorious departure from this world and the miraculous transfer of her body to paradise, is unmistakably designed to highlight Mary's uniquely exalted status among the followers of Christ. Yet the text is also strikingly heterodox, again, unorthodox, in sharp contrast to the stalwartly orthodox Protoevangelium of James. In the book of Mary's repose, Jesus is identified as a manifestation not of the second person of the Trinity, but instead the great cherub of light. And the text is riddled with concepts and vocabulary that would be more at home in a Gnostic Christian text. Indeed, the theological peculiarities of this ancient Christian writing alone should warrant it broader consideration within the study of early Christianity than it has yet received. But perhaps most noteworthy for our purposes 
is the evidence that the Book of Mary's Repose provides for nascent Marian veneration, already by the third century it would seem. Particularly in its conclusion, as Mary tours the places of the damned <coughs> alongside of the apostles, the power of her intercessions on behalf of sinners is made known. For this reason, uh, some scholars have proposed that the traditions of Mary's Dormition and Assumption may have emerged even already in the second century in order to add validation of what they believe was an existing practice of intercession to the Virgin already then. This is an intriguing hypothesis, but I, I haven't found evidence yet that will let me uh, con concur with that hypothesis. It is nonetheless worth noting that this earliest evidence for veneration of Mary, for prayer to Mary, appears to come from a theological milieu that is markedly heterodox. And this is something that could suggest, this, the hypothesis I suggested earlier, uh, that the cult of the Virgin may have had its origins somewhere outside of the orthodox streams of early Christianity. And this too, this would make sense of why the church fathers are so silent, right? because it's something going on among different communities of Christians that aren't orthodox. This is just a hypothesis. I don't know. Thinking. The second of these two important early Dormition narratives, turning to the second text, this is a work known as the Six Books Dormition Apocrypha, so-called on account of its division into six separate books. Although this text is best preserved in several Syriac manuscripts from the 5th and 6th centuries, manuscripts are from the 5th and 6th centuries, the Greek original and its traditions date almost certainly to the middle of the 4th century, if not perhaps even earlier. As much as indicated, especially by their apparent connection with a, a group of 4th century Christian quote-unquote heretics that we know of otherwise, known as the Coloridians, whom a certain church father, Epiphanius, condemned for excessive devotion to the Virgin Mary. Yet most significantly, the Six Books Dormition Apocryphon provides compelling evidence for an early cult of the Virgin nearly a century before the Council of Ephesus. It reveals a remarkably advanced level of Marian veneration, including, in addition to frequent intercessory prayers offered to the Virgin, now we have an organized cult with annual feasts miracles ascribed to the Virgin, and even Marian apparitions by the middle of the fourth century. Judging from this early Dormition narrative, there seems to be little question that the cult of the Virgin had already attained a high degree of complexity by the middle of the fourth century. And once again, it is seemingly noteworthy that in this instance, emergent Marian veneration is also linked with an allegedly marginal group that was regarded as heretical by at least one contemporary church father. I will say this, though. There is absolutely nothing at all heterodox about the six books Dormition Apocryphon. And this is in contrast to the other one I mentioned before. Very stalwartly orthodox. As seemingly was the group that was opposed by Epiphanius. Uh, nonetheless, we may take some clue from this. Again, that somehow this is something coming from the margins. In terms of literary evidence, then, the cult of the Virgin Mary actually fares much better than that of Beverly. It is true, however, that Mary is not quite as visible in early church decoration and pilgrimage art as is Stephen. But again, this difference is not dramatic. Representations of the Virgin in art are largely absent during the first few centuries of Christianity, which is hardly a surprise given that very little in the way of Christian art survives from before the fourth century. The only possible exceptions would be certain representations in the Roman catacombs. But unfortunately, the interpretation of these images is often difficult and subject to considerable debate. Still, there is a strong possibility that we find there depictions of Mary in a funerary context dating from the third century. Much more certain are depictions of Mary as an orange, this, on a gold glass, I'm sorry, on several pieces of gold glass from fourth century Rome. But it is really only in the 5th century that we begin to find representations of Marian art in, in a significant numbers, which, I would add, is fairly typical for most saints. Yet much more important is the, early, sorry, is the evidence for early Marian piety that we find in liturgical sources. 
This is another area where we lack much evidence for the first few centuries of Christianity. But Mary is surprisingly well represented in some of the earliest witnesses to Christian worship. Perhaps the most noteworthy of these is a prayer to Mary on a papyrus from Egypt dating to the 3rd or 4th century. The famous uh, Sub Tuum Praesidium papyrus. It's named for the beginning of this prayer in Latin. Beneath your protection. It translates. And this is a prayer that is still in use in many uh, Christian communities. But there's also evidence of liturgical feasts commemorating the Virgin from the 4th and the 5th centuries in several major urban centers. Jerusalem emerges as the most significant of these, not in the least because its early liturgies are especially well documented, uh, and also because it is the site of, the two, of two of the earliest and most important Marian shrines. Among the most remarkable service books to survive from the ancient church is certainly the recently published Jerusalem Chant Book, a work extant only in old Georgian translation that preserves basically the hymnal of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre from the late 4th, early 5th centuries. And in this collection, we find ample, and I mean ample, evidence that Mary's intercessions were regularly sought during the Sunday worship of Jerusalem in the period prior to the Council of Ephesus, along with a substantial corpus of specifically Marian hymnography dating to the early 5th century. In this respect, Evidence for early Marian veneration exceeds considerably what we find for the liturgical cult not only of Thecla, but of most other early Christian saints as well. On the whole, then, the evidence for early Marian veneration is not nearly as bad as we have frequently been led to believe. And indeed, it compares very favorably with, for instance, Thecla's record, and in some regards even exceeds it. Once again, perhaps the main problem lies not so much with the evidence itself but rather with heightened expectations generated by the Virgin's exaltation in centuries to come. It is perhaps a bit peculiar, however, that we seem to find evidence of an active cult of the Virgin well before we have clear confirmation of a shrine, an actual site dedicated to her. Typically, a saint's shrine was fundamental in the emergence of a cult, particularly in the case of the martyrs. The cult of the martyrs began at the graveside, where early Christians would gather to commemorate their local martyrs and seek their prayers on the anniversary of their death. The saint's grave and his or her relics provided the main locus for offering intercessory prayers and other ritual activities. With the conversion of Constantine in the early 4th century, it became possible to build churches on these sites, and as non-martyrs were soon added to the ranks of the saints, their graves and remains also were graced with increasingly grand sanctuaries and facilities for pilgrims. At these, at these shrines, the saints remained uniquely present and available to petitioners who would often travel great distances to experience the holiness of such places and bring their prayers directly before these trusted advocates. Nevertheless, Mary was not a martyr and thus did not have an obvious spot for a shrine, such as one could discover for Peter or Paul or Thecla. Yet even more problematic was the fact that Mary had not left behind any bodily remains, a quality she shared interestingly with Thecla. Or at least so it came to be believed, particularly in those settings where her veneration was first beginning to take hold, as we see in these more mission and assumption traditions. With no martyrdom and no relics, it would appear that a shrine was not as important to the emergence of the cult of the Virgin as it was for other saints. And the evidence would seem to suggest that her veneration may have initially emerged in the absence of a specific cult center. There were, of course, other possible locations for a shrine besides the grave, and one of the earliest centers of Marian cult developed at an alternative site for the Nativity of Christ, midway between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Almost simultaneously, the Virgin's empty tomb in the Garden of Gethsemane also emerged as a locus of her special veneration. And as the cult of the Virgin rapidly expanded and took hold of the Christian world during the fifth century, this church, the Church of Mary's tomb, quickly took pride of place as the foremost Marian shrine. Like so many other saints then, Mary's cult ultimately came to focus on her tomb, empty though it was. And in the absence of bodily relics, items of her clothing would eventually be discovered in order to evoke her holy presence within her shrines, especially in Constantinople. Therefore, 
despite frequent assertions to the contrary, the evidence for early Christian devotion to Mary is not nearly as meager as has often been maintained. To be sure, it is less abundant than one, less abundant than one might initially expect, given Mary's enormous importance in later Christian faith and practice. Though when considered within the emerging cult of the saints and in comparison with evidence for the veneration of other early Christian saints, particularly those who were not martyrs, the cult of the Virgin fares quite well. It is long past time, then, that Marian devotion should be recognized for its importance in the early history of Christianity, alongside the veneration of other holy men and women from this period. And perhaps now we can also leave behind the persistent need to explain the cult of the Virgin as an intrusion of pagan goddess worship or through some other foreign impulse, finding instead a phenomenon that developed organically from within the early Christian tradition itself, emerging at least initially as simply one popular variant within the nascent cult of the saints. As for the Council of Ephesus, what happened there was something. It would appear it was not the beginnings of the cult of the Virgin, as so many have assumed, but rather it was the embrace and promotion of an already existing set of practices by the Roman Empire and by its imperial church. These political developments bear the primary responsibility for what we see as an explosion of Marian piety across the Roman Empire in the middle of the 5th century. And this merger, the fusion of Marian piety with the Christian Empire and its church, would dramatically transform the Virgin Mary's image and her veneration so that she quickly emerges as the patroness of the Roman or Byzantine Empire and its capital, Constantinople. But that is a story for another project and another book. Thank you. Great if Dr. Shoemaker could work up some enthusiasm for his topic. That's such a boring job. Um, there may be uh, some of you may have some questions you would like uh, to address to him, and so what I'm going to do is invite maybe a couple uh, questions from the audience, and then we, we can call it an evening. He's been very enthusiastic and generous with his time, and I, I'm sure he would also stick around if there are some follow-up questions after one or two that we could all enjoy together. So uh, let, let me just give you some think time and ask you if you have, uh, if anybody has a question that you'd like to, to pose for the good of the order. Gethsemane and Ephesus, the two places that are identified as pretty closely. Talk about that? I sure can. The Ephesus thing is really late. Uh, it is not part of any ancient veneration of Mary. First evidence we have, well, okay, so, so let's back up a little bit, right? There's a tradition that Mary ended her life above the city of Ephesus up in the hills. There's a house there that's supposedly the house where she lived at the end of her life. I actually have a beer mug with the house on it. Pretty cool. I got it when I visited there. Um, so the great thing about studying Mary is all kinds of great souvenirs. Um, so where this comes from, right, is think to the Gospel of John, right? Mary at the foot of the cross. She's entrusted to... John, right? Where does John end up? Therefore, by the transitive property of John, Mary ends up in Ephesus too, right? It makes a lot of sense. But we don't see that in any of the early Christian narratives. In fact, one of the earliest biography of Mary, she starts off to go as a missionary with the other apostles, then she's turned back by God. And she's turned back by God because she's told she has a more important mission. You'll never guess what it is. She's supposed to run the church, which she does. And she directs the apostles, teaches them how to pray. It's kind of awesome. Um, but so this tradition of Ephesus, the first time we see this is in some Syriac texts from southeastern Turkey, what's today southeastern Turkey, northern Mesopotamia. There's a, a, there's a monastic center there. It's part of the Syrian Orthodox Church. It's kind of the equivalent of, say, Mount Athos in that tradition. And somehow, I don't know how and why, no one seems to know, the tradition takes hold there. Uh, and it gains a little bit of popularity then, but then what really, uh, what really makes this tradition so cool and so much fun, right, is the story of its, its modern discovery, right? Uh, the nun Catherine Emmerich uh, supposedly had visions of Mary living out her 
life, the end of her life in the hills above the city of Ephesus, and she described a house there. And then sure enough, some Lazarus fathers took off, book in one hand, a spade in the other, and wow, they found it exactly like she said. Um, and that's why it's become a very important shrine, particularly in, in Roman Catholic devotion. Right? It is not a shrine that is, is recognized in the Eastern Christian tradition. It's something that's only in the Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, and yeah. If it is that the threat of Mary's being assumed mm-hmm. was the absence of anything that she left, it wasn't anything. Normally, someone well loved and, and well known would have something behind a physical thing by which to remember the person. Mary didn't leave anything. Apparently, was no bits of clothing. No, no, there were bits of clothing. There were bits of clothing. There's, there are actually several. Uh, more than enough. Uh, the others work sometimes. Um, and breast milk was the other relic that they had from Mary. Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's like, it's, like, it's like what Jesus all they could get was the foreskin, right? This is the main relic that's left from, from Christ's body in the Middle Ages. For Mary, it was breast milk. And her girdle, uh, her belt, uh, is one. And there are several girdles uh, in various places. Uh, and then uh, some sort of a garment... Uh, it's, it's a garment, very generically in the earliest traditions. It then becomes called her veil. It's her, prote- her protecting veil. And the, the, the Byzantine tradition believes this, this protecting veil covers Constantinople and protects it, which it did for a while. Um, and uh, then something is also a burial shroud as well. Where are these articles now? Depends who you ask. I'm not sure where the Constantinople relics have ended up. To be perfectly honest, uh, I think I think at least one of them ended up in Italy. This was what happened to a lot of the Eastern relics after the fall of Constantinople, as they fled with a lot of the, the, the intellectuals and the leaders to Italy. I don't know specifically where they are. I know there's a girdle. Well, there was. God knows what it's like now in Hama in Syria. Um, I'm trying to think. I, you know, I don't know all the places where her relics are, but there are. I think I think that shark shark was part of her veil. That's part of her veil. That's another one. And it was yeah. built originally as a shrine for that piece of clothing. But not surely it wasn't the one from Constantinople, right? Not, not yeah. So I don't know what happened to that one. Uh, and yeah, I mean, when one of these pilgrims goes, a Piacenza pilgrim, a sixth-century pilgrim, uh, he's one of our favorites. He's 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 very colorful and has great stories, but. Well, let's just say there's a lot of alternative facts compared to the other pilgrims. Um, but he gets to Nazareth, and he's going to Mary's house, and he's opening her closet, and she sees a whole closet full of the Virgin Mary's clothes. How cool must that have been, right? Um, but he's the only person who saw that, so she did leave a lot of neat stuff behind. Yeah, what about the, uh, the Church of Santa Maria in Trastevere? I've always heard that that is, is one of the oldest uh, churches dedicated to could you repeat that question? The Church uh, of Santa Maria in Trastevere. I, I don't know. Okay. I don't know anything about it. I, I know so much less about the Western tradition uh, than I do about the Eastern tradition. Uh, and I don't know a lot about you know, art history, architectural history is one of my blind spots. I know that uh, Santa Maria Maggiore is quite old and it's from, from this particular, the end of this period I'm discussing. I don't know that church being older, but it's, pos- it's possible it is. Although I tried to track down everything. You mentioned that the cult of the saints in general took a, a while to develop. Mm, uh, yes. What, where, where does Thecla uh, and uh, the Hope of Virgin, how does that line up time-wise with like the, um, the devotion to the, uh, the apostles? Devotion to the apostles. Well, that's a good question. And I don't know especially about the devotion to the apostles. The thing is what develops first is the cult of the martyrs. Right? Uh, and so... You know, arguably in the second century we're starting to see the cult of the martyrs with something like the martyr of Polycarp. It's much clearer in the third century. In the third century we're starting to find you know, suggestions of some shrines. We're starting to see some pilgrimage art from some of these early martyr shrines. Um, insofar as any of the, the uh, apostles would have been martyrs, they too could have fallen. They would have fallen under the veneration of martyrs. I'm not sure of, mar- of apostles uh, who were venerated early on who weren't martyrs. 
I just, I don't, I don't know, that's a, that's a specific question I don't know a lot about. But what happens is you generally don't start to think of the veneration of non-martyr saints, period. Maybe the apostles would be an interesting exception, but you don't start seeing non-martyr saints venerated until there aren't any martyrs anymore. Right? Once they stop making martyrs, when Constantine stops the persecution of Christians, uh, that's when now it's opened up to non-martyrs. Uh, which is why actually it, would, it makes perfect sense to be seeing Mary, who was not a martyr, uh, see her cult rising with these other non-martyr saints. Even though, at the same time, as I've said more than once in this talk, I hope I was repeating myself too much, I know I am, uh, you know, given how important she became, we would expect her to be really important from the beginning. And that is, admittedly to me, something of a mystery. But you know, if we take if we take you know our hindsight away and we just look at her as another non-martyr who becomes uh, subject to veneration, she's right on time. We don't have a talk this thick without more questions. Dr. Shoemaker will be very generous and enthusiastic with his time. If, if uh, questions linger in your mind, but would you join me in thanking him one more time? <laughs>